encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 2 as we look at this marvelous passage this morning and hear what the Lord has to say to us and teach us. Congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I don't think I'm dating myself too badly because we have all these oldies channels and so uh, a lot of us will be familiar with this. But a number of years ago, it's quite a number of years, a couple of, a few decades ago in fact, there was a singer named Aretha Franklin and she belted out the now classic song, Respect. And uh, she wanted, she sang a little R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And, and the world sang along, and, and again, it's still a classic uh, till today, because these words, respect, they actually vocalize what is part of our natural desire as fallen creatures. We, we all want a little. In fact, we want a lot of respect. Our desire is that people treat us the way we think we deserve. Pride, selfishness, our desire to be thought of as, as good as or even better than others. That is something that characterizes us always. And apart from the regenerating power of Christ's Holy Spirit, we would all, let's face it, we would all be quite content to go on living this way. But as his redeemed people, our Lord Jesus Christ will not have that. He wants us to be putting to death that natural selfishness in us. And he wants us to be growing in what I'm calling selflessness. And selflessness, boys and girls, refers to when we put others ahead of ourselves. Again, ahead of our own desires, our own comforts even. That's how we are to be living as Christ's children in this world, now that he has redeemed us. And it would seem that very early in the uh, infancy of the church that uh, this became something that was a problem already that had to be addressed by the missionaries and by the apostles. It would seem, as we read through this letter, that in the Philippian church, people were neglecting the greater good for their own good. And so Paul not only exhorts them, he does something amazing. He holds up the supreme example, the selflessness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, he says in verse 5, and this is a more literal translation, let this mind or let this mindset, think mindset, be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In other, in other words, what he's saying to the church is we, you need to be growing in this attitude of, of putting others before yourself. This is something you need to be aspiring to. You need to be uh, resolved to pursue this, this kind of an attitude the attitude of your Lord. We are to be imitating Him. And so this morning, uh, we summarize what we learn here in Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11, with these words, we believers confess Christ as the supreme example of selflessness. We believers confess Christ as the supreme example of selflessness. And why was He the supreme example of selflessness? We'll see that in our three points. First of all, who He was, Secondly, what he became, and thirdly, what he has merited. Now, what makes the selflessness of Christ supreme, that is, surpassing the selflessness of anyone else in all of history, is the reality of who Jesus was. In verse 6, we heard this, if you have your Bibles open, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
And verse 6 describes Jesus, of course, before his incarnation, before he came to earth to be our Savior, before he took on our flesh and all our weaknesses. Well, who was Jesus? Who has Jesus always been, we might say? Well, verse 6 tells us of the divinity of Jesus. Jesus was divine. Jesus was God. He existed in the form of God. What in the world does that mean? Well, the word form, we have to understand, is taken from the world of Greek philosophy. And it doesn't mean what we mean when we use the word form today, exactly. Today, when we use the word form, we mean uh, that, that something looks a certain way. And so, for instance, if we commission somebody who does carpentry or whatever, we say, I want you to build me a dining room table. Well, we expect that when he delivers, it'll be this big flat surface with four legs or, or six legs, whatever, that we can sit around and we can eat on. If it looks like a couch, then we quickly realize we called the wrong man or the wrong company. And so we understand that's how we use the word form. Well, the Greeks used the word form differently. When they spoke that way, when they used that word, they were talking about the essence, the, the qualities of a thing. What makes that thing that thing? Uh, and so um, what, what is it comprised of? And so a table, we would say, uh, is in the form of, of wood because it's, it has a quality, a characteristic of, of woodness, right? Uh, meatballs have the quality of, of, you know, hamburger meat or ground beef. It's not made out of tofu ever, right? Uh, and so uh, we, we, that's how, we, how, uh, how the Greeks would use the word. They're talking here about the quality, the essence. And Paul is saying here then that Jesus, before he came to earth, before his incarnation, possessed all the divine attributes, the characteristics of God. He was in the form of God. And scripture teaches that before his incarnation, Jesus existed in the majesty and glory of his divinity. He was everything God is. And so, uh, when we think about the characteristics, characteristics of God, uh, and then we look at Jesus and what is said about Jesus, we see that Jesus had all these characteristics as, as well. And, and so we say, uh, well, well, God is eternal. Well, was Jesus eternal? Well, listen to what he said to the Jews in Luke 1.35, before, um, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, he, he has always existed. Is, is God holy? Absolutely. Well, Jesus is called the Holy One. Immediately in Luke 1, verse 35, before he became man, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 6, tells us that Jesus was worshipped by the angels. Or if you're thinking of a more explicit text, you might think of John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If we uh, think, well, uh, God is almighty, that's one of his qualities. Well, uh, we, we read in Colossians 1, verses 16 to 17, that of Jesus, that by him all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And so, and we can go on and on, but all that belongs to the dignity, all that is distinctive of the majesty of God was in the possession of the Son of God before he became flesh and dwelt among us. But then Paul uh, further teaches us that even though Jesus was in possession of all of these things, he did not seek to hold on to it. This goes to his selflessness. 
And that's the, the, the sense of these confusing words. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, any seminary student, any pastor will tell you that this verse is notoriously hard to translate from the Greek, and it can be mistranslated, it can be misinterpreted, and it, and it is very, very often. For instance, if you had uh, your uh, neighborhood Jehovah's Witnesses come to visit your house on a Saturday morning, and you at some point told them, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church or, uh, or whatever, they'll say, yeah, we're Christians too. And at some point, you'll get into the divinity of Jesus, and they will actually whip out their New World Translation, their corrupted Bible, and they will show you Philippians 2, and uh, they will say, you see, Jesus wasn't God. You know, you've been led astray by your church leaders, because they translate it in the New World Translation to say that Jesus didn't grab for God's position, as Satan did. He humbly accepted his place. That's how they translate it, and that's how they interpret it. Which sounds nice, but it's wrong, and it's blasphemous. The ESV, in fact, translates it much clearer. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we understand that word grasped, children. Held onto, gripped onto. You refuse to let go. And what Paul is teaching is this. Jesus was in the position of divinity. He was in possession of all the glory of divinity before his incarnation, but he did not seek to retain it. He did not fight to hold on to it. He refused to hold on to his divinity, to clutch it greedily, like a toddler holding on to a cookie. When they lock their hand and they say, no, it's mine. Now, our Savior, of course, didn't need to reach out and and, and uh, take hold or grab hold of divinity. It was in his possession, as we said. But the sense here is that he did not look at it as something to be grasped, something to be clutched tightly, something to be retained with every effort in him. You see, Christ could have insisted that if he was uh, going to come to earth, he was going to come in all his full glory, and he wanted to be worshipped, and he wanted to be served, he wanted to be revered. It, it would have been within his right as the second person of the Holy Trinity to, ins, to insist um, that uh, if I come, I'm not going to be a servant. I'm, I'm going to be a king, indeed, because I'm the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He could have insisted that if he, if he came, he would come in a blaze of glory with all his heavenly majesty, but he didn't. In fact, the Bible says of him that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. That through his poverty, we might become rich. That's 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Or we read in Hebrews 12 verse 2, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. In congregation, that's why, that's one of the reasons why Jesus was and is the supreme example of selflessness, because he who came to save us was master of the house, the one to whom all worship and adoration is due. It's a wonder of wonders. The eternal Son of God, though he was worthy of it, he came not to be served, but to serve. This is how great the love of our God is for us, that he would condescend to such a stunning degree. But that is what he did to save us. Let's listen again to verses 7 to 8. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now that we understand the height of glory from which Christ came, now we see the depth to which he descended. And so we see this in the second place, what he became. But before we even get into these terms, we should notice that a great part of the emphasis in these verses is placed on the voluntary action of the Son of God. We have to see that none of this was forced on him. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant. He came in the likeness of men. He humbled himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. God the Father indeed loved us so much that he gave his only son for us. But we have to understand that Jesus came willingly, not kicking and screaming. He was never coerced. He was never guilted into coming to save us. But having said that, let's see what depths to which the Savior descended. The Bible says that Jesus emptied himself. Now, that does not mean that he discarded his glory and his divinity in order to become man, certainly not. Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. Some other translations put it this way, he made himself nothing. Well, how exactly did he do that? What does that mean that Jesus emptied himself or made himself nothing? Well, the answer to that is not what, in, in what Jesus gave up, but what he took on. And he took on, according to verses 7 and 8, three things. He emptied himself, or he made himself nothing, by taking the form of a bondservant. Again, that word form points us to the reality and the fullness of his servanthood. We might say it this way, when Jesus came to be our Savior, he was not playing dress-up. He placed himself in this lowly position under God's law, under man's authority. That's the selflessness of Jesus Christ. That's the depth of his love for us. Knowing the wrath of God that was to fall upon the children of Adam, Seeing that there was none among us who did any good, not even one, and that we had no other hope, no other Savior, Jesus came to do for us what we were unable to do for ourselves. He came to walk in perfect obedience to the law of God for us and to surrender his life for our life. And to do this, the Lord of the mansion had to become the slave without rights, without privileges. And it's in this lowly position that Jesus could say, my father is greater than I, a verse that is quite often, again, misinterpreted or misunderstood. A second way that Jesus emptied himself was by being born in the likeness of men and was in human form, Paul says. And two things are indicated here. As far as Jesus looked outwardly, he could not be identified as anything but a man. He didn't have a, sometimes you see those old paintings and you see a halo painted around their heads. Jesus didn't have a halo. There was no divine glow around him. He looked like an ordinary man because he was 
fully man. He became flesh and dwelt among us, to borrow the language of John in chapter 1, verse 14. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8, verse 3. He was born of a woman, Galatians 4, verse 4, just as we are. He was made like his brethren, Hebrews 2, verse 17. The Gospels reveal that Jesus took on every weakness that we experience. And so we read of Jesus being hungry, thirsty, tired. We read of him weeping. Uh, and, and, and certainly he took on the ability to die. He was tempted as we are in every way, yet was without sin. Jesus suffered all the physical, mental, emotional, even spiritual struggles that we do. He became obedient even unto death on the cross. That's a third way that he emptied himself. The, the eternal God, the immortal one, humbled himself and took on a nature that was subject to death. And again, this was not forced upon him. He voluntarily took it on. He certainly was not obligated to do any of this. It was all of love, all of grace and mercy. On the cross, nailed and bleeding, his life ebbing away, and finally committing his spirit into the hands of the Father, Jesus, the suffering servant, was the supreme example of selflessness. He who is the true and living God incarnate died a wretched death by crucifixion, reserved only for thieves and slaves and traitors by the Romans. But he who saved others refused to save himself. But we also see the supremacy of Christ's selflessness in what he merited. That's what we want to see in the third place. And for that, we read again verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, we have to, when we read this and we see the word therefore, uh, we have to re realize that it connects what we read here with what came before. So something resulted from Jesus' selfless sacrifice. God the Father gave his approval to the perfection of the work of the Son. He highly exalted him. As a matter of fact, it's even stronger in the Greek. We could translate it like this. He hyper-exalted him. And the idea is not that Jesus was promoted to a position that was greater than what he had before. The contrast is between how he was in his lowly state when he walked among us as a servant in his humanity and his restoration to glory. And so Jesus has resumed his position of glory and majesty in the heavens, which is what he prayed for in John 17, verse 5, when he prayed, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. But that's not all. God also gave him the name which is above every other name. What is that name, boys and girls? Verse 11 tells us, Lord. And to bear the title Lord means that Jesus holds the supreme position of rank and dignity. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians uh, 1, verse 20 to 21, that God has seated him, Christ, 
at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And from this position, the Son rules, fulfilling Psalm 2, with his iron scepter as head of his body, the church, as king over all nations, all power and authority having been given to him. And this will result in two things, verse 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, these verses, of course, are adopted from Isaiah 45, verses, verse 23. Isaiah 45, verse 23, which sounds like this. God says through his prophet, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And what is, what is stressed in this Old Testament passage is that one day, all creation will acknowledge their subjection to God. And there's a sense of compulsion. Whether they like it or not, they will bow and swear to God. And now Paul illumines this for us, taking it into the New Testament, and he shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy. He is the one before whom all will bow in subjection. If not today, someday, whether they like it or not. And yet, Jesus, knowing all of this, was the supreme example of selflessness. He didn't allow any of this knowledge to give him a, a big head or, or to walk around with his nose in the air, thinking that he was knowing that he was better than everybody else. He walked this world humbly. And that's, that's why Paul uses this example to teach the church in that day and teach us today. Because we have to think, okay, this is all fine and good. We've just looked at the divinity of Jesus and so on. But what does that really mean for us? Let's remember, in order to answer that question, let's remember the command that led Paul to set this great example before us. Verses 3 and 4. He says to the church and to us, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's the command. And then Paul proceeds to hold up Jesus as the great and grand example, the supreme example of selflessness. Jesus is the one who models this for us as no, as no one other. Uh, and, and he is the one we are to be imitating that's what we're called to be as his people. We are to be following Christ, walking in his steps, putting ourselves then, just as he did, uh, putting ourselves second place to others, just as he did for us, seeking the good of others, putting the needs, the feelings, the desires ahead of our own. And congregation, we have to admit, when we're honest, that like the Philippians, quite often, we don't think like this, we don't act like this. We don't do what is required of us as Christians. Think about it. Every Christian who has gone through a few seasons of life, every Christian carries scars in their hearts because of the unkind words or actions of others 
especially fellow Christians. And we all are guilty of wounding others as well. How often do we think more often of uh, ourselves than what is important to others? Or we think of ourselves as more significant, to use the word of the Apostle Paul there, than others. How eager are we quite often to to lower ourselves, to humble ourselves, to, to go to that brother or sister with the goal of just making peace, not just to get our point across, to make sure they understand why we're mad, not, not to rub it in in some way or, or offer some word of criticism or correction. How often don't we just go to make peace with our brother and sister? How much of the disunity and the grumbling that goes on in our churches go on because God's people who are supposed to be following our Lord Jesus Christ are more selfish than selfless? How do we change? Paul shows us. You look to Christ, the supreme example of selflessness, and you seek his help and you model him. You see that he wants us to serve others and to put ourselves second place and others first. And he wants us to do so without the thought of, of recognition or reward. He wants us to show real concern without praising attention for ourselves or craving attention for ourselves. He wants us to help others succeed without our own hearts being filled with envy. He wants us to seek the good of others, even if it means that we are neglected or not recognized for what we have done. He wants us to pray passionately for others, even though we might never hear a word of thanks for it. That's selflessness. That's Christ-likeness. That is what it means to imitate Christ. The pride and the self-love have to go. And we have to begin to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. I'll end with a personal story. A number of years ago, I had to return something to Walmart. And I handed it in to the customer service. It was an electronic uh, product. And um, so they said to me, okay, well, before, our policy is that uh, somebody from electronics has to come and examine it before we can give you the refund, which was fine. I said, okay, well, yeah, send them along. But the person who was supposed to come to check the product, uh, it, it seemed in my mind, it seemed that they were taking their time in coming. I waited a very, very long time. And the longer I waited, and maybe you have had this experience yourself, the longer I waited, the more irritated I became. Uh, and uh, the pride in me began to say, uh, who do they think they are having me wait so long? I'm the customer, the customer is always right, and all these things that, that goes on in our minds. And then the associate came, slowly pushing herself along in her wheelchair because she had no legs. And my impatience disappeared in an instant, replaced only by a sense of great shame on myself. And beloved of God, it took something that drastic to remind me that day of how prideful I am. But you know, it it shouldn't. 
we should all be continually looking at our Lord Jesus Christ. We should be thinking about the sacrifice that He made for us every day. We should remember how great His love is for us. And so with His help, let us be striving to live more humbly and thankfully in our marriages, as we love our, our wives, as we respect our husbands, Boys and girls, as we honor our parents, that's Christ-likeness. We're putting their needs, their joy, their comfort, their happiness ahead of our own. That's what it means to follow Christ, respecting our parents, honoring them, caring, even for those uh, we might not want to be around. We all have those mean or crude neighbors who cut their grass on a Sunday and those kinds of things, but they need the gospel as well. And so we need to put ourselves second place and we need to go to them humbly. And we need to honor the church of Jesus Christ. Let this Christly attitude of selflessness be in us. Follow in the steps of our Lord. Model Him. And the Lord will give us humility if we pray for it earnestly. Amen.